Isn't it awkward talking about death? We're all going to die in the end, yet somehow death is still seen as one of society's taboos. Dead Good brings the conversation to the forefront by asking those questions you want to know but might have been too afraid to ask. I'm Sajila Kershi, and in this podcast series, I'll be speaking to some of my favourite people, from comedians, actors and beyond, about their experiences of death, and in doing so, challenge the taboos that exist within society. Today, our guest is author, playwright, former Time Out comedy reviewer, who actually gave me my first ever review, Tim Arthur. Tim is currently CEO at the Royal Academy of Dance. Very impressive. This episode, Tim talks at length about his experience of when his wife Louise was diagnosed with a brain tumour shortly after the birth of their daughter. We discussed a range of topics, from grief, moving on, finding love and a bit of nookie, remembering the last few weeks of Louise's life, how their dark, beautiful sense of humour got them through the tough times, how Louise prepared Tim to raise their daughter without her. And we find out how Tim made a bit of an awkward mistake at Louise's funeral. Whoopsie-daisy. It's a really good conversation. I found it moving, hilarious and insightful. And I really hope you do too. Hey, Tim, how are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Sajila. How are you? I've got some reviews to thank you for, actually, back in the day. You still have your comedic voice, obviously, and hopefully you're going to use it today. So I'm going to get stuck in with you around death. I want to kind of ask, well, what were your views and experiences of death and dying as a, as a youngster? You know what? Hardly anything. This was the thing. It's like none of my grandparents died when I was young. Yeah, I just didn't really have any experience of it or any cognizance of it, really. It wasn't something that factored in my life. So it wasn't really until I was married and my wife was diagnosed with cancer that the whole issue of death came up. In fact, my parents, by that time, my mum had still not lost her mum or dad either. So just wasn't really a big thing around around the family. I'd hardly been to any funerals actually either. Yeah, even my parents didn't lose their parents when I was sort of growing up. Everything happened in my sort of late teens, early 20s really. So death just wasn't, it wasn't a thing that I was aware of or thought about. And particularly it wasn't spoken about in school. It wasn't, you know, so actually when I went through the experience I went through, I had no real reference points. I had nobody that I could even go to to talk to about it. I couldn't even go to my mum and dad because I hadn't lost anyone at that point. So it just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a big factor of me of me growing up. I just thought people lived forever. Mm. Apparently not. Uh, no, apparently not. As uh, we, uh, By the way, uh, spoiler alert out there, guys, we will not live forever in spite of all the songs that tell you otherwise. Going back to your teens, you said that until your teens, nothing changed until your teens. Did you, had you lost someone at that point? Was it person? Was it pet? No, no. I mean, I did lose pets, but then, oh, that's true. That is true. I had lost pets, but I didn't really think of that as, hmm. I didn't think of pets as people, which is, but having said that, now I've got a little dog, Bailey, that would break my heart. Um, so I had lost pets and things. No, it was really, it was actually, when I say late teens, I really mean early 20s, which was when Louise, yeah. my wife, got ill, because she mm. got ill really early into our into our marriage. And that's when I suddenly had to face this idea of mortality, this idea that, oh man, these, you know, people die. And then around that point, my nan died. And then my granddad died really quickly afterwards. 
and so there was a there suddenly was this sort of you know like buses you know you <laughs> you wait a long time for one then three come along all at the same time so how do you feel talking about death and grief now yeah i mean i've i've spoken a lot about it since louise died and i wrote a book about louise dying and did a one man show about her dying so i've sort of feel like i've done my fair share of talking about it and i feel really comfortable about it and i feel quite comfortable around death now and you know if people i have had situations since then when other loved ones have passed away and it just doesn't hold the fear that it used to i'm not uncomfortable being around it and even my own mortality i think i've changed you know i used to be petrified of dying um, all the time now i just sort of see that as a I was about to say a blessed release, but um, but life's pretty good at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm very comfortable with talking about it. And I think it's something we should talk about more. You know, I think it's still one of those weird taboos where whenever somebody's really ill or something, everyone starts whispering and starts going, oh, yeah, sorry, she's got cancer. Or she's got, you know, it's like, it's just part of life. Yeah. Now, I remember when we met and initially you were very comfortable talking about Louise. I remember feeling really uncomfortable because I didn't want you to be upset and in a way you ended up reassuring me because I was like oh my god this is so terrible which a lot of people you know would because they feel your pain but you were reassuring and I think that happens quite a lot where the person that's bereaved ends up almost like kind of sympathizing and calming the other person down who's just heard this news that because I could feel your pain, but obviously you were speaking about it in quite a matter of fact because you had spoken about it many times before. But it's such a devastating thing to hear that, you know, young couple, a couple, new baby, and uh, I'm going to let you tell your story about Louise yourself. But it, I just wanted you to, to know what an impact it had on me just hearing about the death of your beloved wife. I think that can happen really easily that other people, especially they haven't seen you for a long time. So sometimes after Louise died, you might bump into somebody who haven't seen you for like two or three years. And it's quite a long time then after somebody died. And they'll go like, oh, how's things? How's Louise? And then you have to break the news all over again. And it is really difficult. The pain that you experience on, from somebody else who hears it for the first time, and sometimes they don't know how to react, and sometimes they can get really emotional. And you do end up doing the weirdest things. You end up minimizing it, like to make them feel right. So you end up going, yeah, it was okay. It's nothing really. You know, it's fine. It was just a thing, you know, um, which of course it's like the biggest, most devastating thing that could happen to you. But you end up going like, you know, we just get through, don't you? You keep going. And it's, but it is that thing where people aren't comfortable, aren't comfortable often talking about death and receiving the news. And every time you do that, it's like a new impact on somebody. So it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a weird one. Before we talk about Louise and what happened with her, I just wanted to know how, like, after you lost her, the people around you, did you feel like you they kind of distanced themselves from you or were they approaching, were they coming closer to you or did they just out of awkwardness avoid you? It totally depended on the person. Some people who I thought were really quite close friends, I think just couldn't handle it, emotionally couldn't handle it themselves, didn't want to see me in pain, actually were probably grieving as well. And so pulled away and maybe were just waiting for me to come forward and didn't want to impose. There are quite a few people that sort of just drifted away. There were other people that were incredibly generous and came forward and wanted to be around. And the difficult thing is at that time, I was all over the place, so I didn't know what I wanted. Some days I wanted somebody to be there who could talk about it and I could grieve with. Other times that was the last thing I wanted to do. It's really complicated. But even with, the, even with your own family, 
the thing that I learned is that that when you lose somebody in the family, what's weird is everybody loses somebody different. So for me, I lost Louise, who was my wife and the mother of my daughter. For Sheila, she lost her daughter. For Paul, he lost her daughter. And we're all different people to different things. So the, the grief is very singular. And actually, it's quite difficult to grieve collectively. It's a process that you have to go through on your own. And you can hold each other and you can be together. But actually, ultimately, you're going to go through this and heal at your own pace and and how you do it. So it's, um, I didn't feel like it was something that brought a lot of us together, you know. Hmm. That's a really, really, really interesting thing to say, because I think that will probably resonate with a lot of people. Certainly, grief is complicated. Okay, so let's talk about Louise and what happened with her. If you could tell us how she died, what was wrong with her, what, you know, what led to that moment, please. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So... I met Louise, I'm not going to do the full story, <laughs> I was going way back. Well, I met Louise when we were about 14, but I did. I met her when I was about 14. We had this sort of, didn't, I didn't really speak to her. She was way out of my league. She was far too beautiful for me. And every time I got near her, I got really embarrassed and um, tongue-tied. A bit like a sort of less good-looking, less posh Hugh Grant. I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I can't do uh, So I'd never get anywhere near her. And basically, when I came back from university, I proposed, we, we sort of met at a party, we kissed, we had sex. I then proposed about three days later because she was like the perfect woman I'd ever met. She said yes, which blew me away and we got married. And everything was on fast forward for us in our relationship. Then we very sadly lost a child, an ectopic pregnancy, and that was sort of devastating. And then just after we'd sort of recovered from that and Louise was pregnant, in the second trimester, so about six months into her pregnancy, we were walking across a local park and she looked at me and she winked at me. And then I winked back at her. And then she said, why are you winking at me? And I said, I don't know, why are you, why are you winking at me? And she said, I'm, I'm not winking. And then I realized she wasn't winking. What had happened was her eyelid had dropped and she couldn't control it. And she was trying really hard to sort of blink and flick her eye up. And she did, and the eye went back, and we went, oh, that's really weird, isn't it? But we just thought it was something to do with pregnancy. You know, pregnancy is weird. Things shift in your body at that point. It's strange. So we just carried on going. About two days later, the exact same thing happened again. Her eyelid dropped, and um, we just thought we should get it checked out. So we went to the doctor. He said, oh, that's really weird. I should take you to a specialist. So we went to see a specialist who did loads of checks on her, and he said it was something called Horner's syndrome. And I can remember having no concept that this might be serious at all. And we were in the we were in the waiting room with him and said, and I, and I actually said to him, oh, it's not cancer or anything, is it? I had no idea why that came into my head. And he said at that time, no, no, it's, you know, in, in most of the times I've seen Horner's syndrome, it's nothing to do with that, but we should get you checked out as soon as you've had the baby. And so we went on, Caitlin was born. And then three weeks after Caitlin was born, Louise was taken in for an MRI scan. And they kept her in the MRI scanner for hours i mean they just kept scanning her and scanning her and she came out and she was in a real state and she said i think something's really badly wrong tim and i went no no i don't think so they just said you know they said they hadn't quite got the image and they had to do it again but two days later they called us into the hospital they told us we'd get the results in like three weeks but actually we got it in two days and they called us in at seven o'clock in the morning and as we were driving up to the hospital it was the most beautiful crisp november morning and I put my hand on Louise's leg and I said, look at the day. Nothing bad could happen on a day like this. It's just perfect. 
And I really, really believed it. And I just thought they wanted to tell us because we just had a new baby and, you know, they wanted to make her, put her mind at rest. And we got to the hospital. And the first time I knew something was wrong was when I saw the specialist walking down towards um, the consultancy room that we were going to go into. And I heard him say to a nurse, oh, would you come in while I speak to Mr. and Mrs. Arthur and give them the news? And something in the back of my head at that point went, that's not right. Why does, why, why do we need somebody in there? And then sure enough, we went in and he put a scan up of Louise's head and he pointed to this large, dark mass in the middle of it and said, ah, oh, this shadow, I'm really sorry to tell you, but this shadow here is your tumor. And he said, you've got, you've got a tumor. And he said, and I'm really sorry, it's in tiger country. And he said, it's really dangerous to go in and operate in there. I'm not sure what we can do about it. And then that's how we found out. And I can remember trying to leave the room. I nearly passed out. I just like literally like couldn't breathe. And Louise was really calm. And I remember her putting her hand on me and saying, I think we just have to wait here and we just have to find out more information. And I said, she's not going to die though, is she? She said, she won't die. And he just said, well, I'm really sorry. You've got to take each day at a time. And he said, I'm not sure anybody can do anything to help. And she's, and Louise really calm and said, what does that mean? And he said, well, if we can't do anything, I think we're talking about weeks or months um, rather than years. And then you have that weird thing where you leave the hospital and you go out back into that unbelievably beautiful, crisp, bright blue sky of a November morning and every single thing about your world has changed. And I can remember walking down the street and going, why isn't everybody screaming? And I couldn't, I literally couldn't work it out. I was like, why doesn't everybody know that the world's ending and that this is the worst thing that could possibly happen? And we had to go back and we had left our three-week-old daughter with our neighbor, Di, and I had to go and pick her up. And she said, everything all right? Did everything go all right at the, um, at the hospital? And that was the first time I just broke. And I just went, no, it's not all right. Nothing's all right. And then we started the process and it was just horrendous, you know, the process of telling other people. And we were talking about what it's like talking about it afterwards, but telling people that was one of the hardest bits because every time you relive it, it's like a trauma. You phone somebody up and you get that. And I remember phoning my dad. I'd never heard my dad cry ever in my life. My dad actually has a default setting, which is happy. And he has a default setting, which he always says, when I was growing up, whenever I was unhappy, he would go, come on, Tig, which was my nickname. Come on, Tig, it's not the end of the world. And that would be his, oh, it's not the end of the world. Come on, pick yourself up. And so I phoned dad up and he was up in London at the time, staying in a flat. And he said, oh, hi, Tig, how are you doing? And I went, oh, uh, not so good, actually, dad. We just got the, got the results back from uh, Louise and it's cancer, dad. And they, and they think she's going to die from it. And this sort of rock, this sort of iron man that I'd grown up with, always positive, always happy. There was just this echo of silence at the end. And then I heard this huge crash as he fell to the floor. And then I heard him just howl. And I'd never heard anything like it. I just heard him cry and cry and cry. And then his girlfriend at the time picked up the phone and said, "What's who is this? What's going on? She said, oh, look, Tim, I'm sorry. I'm going to phone you back. Your dad's, you know, on the floor. And that's the sort of, that's that, that's that thing again. That's like a different kind of grief. That's a grief while somebody's still there. And it resonated for him because his mum had died of cancer and it brought up loads of other stuff. 
and anyway, so so then we went through the process and Louise had chemotherapy and radiotherapy. She had a huge operation. She had a 12-hour operation to remove the cancer. And then that was followed by the chemotherapy and radiotherapy. And there's so much, you know, there's just so much in that process going through all of that. And they said after she'd been through that treatment, they said, right, she's got, you know, we don't know how long she'll have now. It could be five years, it could be 25 years, but it will come back because they hadn't been able to remove it all. I mean, they just told us to go and live our lives. And then it came back, came back four years later and she died a year after that. So she died in 2000. Yeah. So it's a lot to unpick there. I mean, going back to when the news was broken to both of you, and I thought that was interesting that Louise stayed calm and that you kind of broke down. And then because you're, obviously you're facing possibly losing your wife and also this, this devastating news and you want to protect her. And then you in turn tell your father, who's always been there for you, been strong. And then he breaks down because it's his son. Obviously he must have loved Louise as well as his daughter, but you know, it's ultimately it's his son who's going to be facing this terrible situation and obviously bringing up his own grief. So, and yet the one person who it affects like Louise seemed to accept this or was that the case? Was there times where she felt like she would, you know, she had broken down? Yeah, I mean, it was really interesting. She was an amazing woman. She was, is the big love of my life. And one of the things I'd always been attracted with Louise was she just had this kind of inner calm. People, she was actually incredibly shy. Um, and so she'd be quite quiet. And then people would sort of gravitate to her like she was this sort of Buddha-like character. Um, but often it was just because she was socially awkward. But she did have this incredible acceptance, I think. I think that's exactly the word. She didn't really ever get that idea. You know when people talk about fighting cancer? We go, oh, they had a really good fight against cancer. Or people say, I'm fighting cancer. Louise just couldn't understand that as a concept. She didn't understand how that would even happen. It's like, I can't fight my own body. This is something that's happening. And what? how do you fight that? And her route really was around acceptance. And that was her journey, was to like, how could she get herself in a place where she could accept that and then do the things that she wanted to do before she died, to put things in place, particularly for our daughter and for me. And I think because of her acceptance, it changed all of our journeys with her. You know, and that's not to say that she was a saint about it or that she didn't have moments where she was petrified or moments where she had great anxiety or depression around it. She really did. But underneath it, there was a lot of acceptance and that absolutely helped. That helped everybody around her then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now you mentioned your daughter, Caitlin, obviously, um, and she was how old? So she, well, when we got the diagnosis, she was like three weeks old. And when Louise died, she was four. So she was, you know, tiny. You know, when we've spoken before, you did mention that, and this is an interesting thing when, when young children, how they react to a, a parent who is essentially dying. Can you just uh, like tell, tell our listeners about Caitlin's kind of journey with, with that? Yeah, I mean, it was fascinating. One of the things that we were most concerned about, I think, was about Caitlin. It became a real focus of that part of the end of Louise's life of like, how do we protect Caitlin? How do we prepare her for it? We actually went to see a grief counsellor at the hospice, an amazing guy who, and a lot of our conversations was was about how do we manage this? What are they capable of understanding? How do we do this in a way that will allow Caitlin to 
to be okay, I suppose, or as okay as you can be. And he was amazing. He just gave us loads of advice. And we really gradually introduced her to it. As Louise got iller, we would say things like, all right, mummy's off to the hospital today, or mummy needs to see the doctor, or these are mummy's medicine to make her feel better because she's not feeling well. And then when she was spending more time at the hospice, you would introduce those, you know, mummy's not going to get much better and she's going to spend more time away. But what's fascinating is at that point, there was a point where Caitlin, Caitlin had always been a mummy's girl. She'd always just adored it. And I loved watching it as well. Their relationship was so incredible and tight and intense. And I was like the joker bloke that came in at the end of the day and mucked around a bit. And But it was always, you know, if she banged a knee or she didn't think that, she'd always go to Louise. But there was one day when we left the hospice, and this was probably six months, seven months before Louise died, where Caitlin took my hand and sort of tugged it. And I looked down at her and she said, mummy's getting weaker, isn't she, daddy? But we're getting stronger. And it absolutely broke my heart. But it was her, it was almost like a survival instinct, I think. It was like, right, you're you're going to be here. It was like somehow she had worked out that Louise wasn't going to be around forever and she needed to feel safe and secure and... And so from that, almost from that point on, I became, you know, her, her main emotional support, actually, I think. Now, that's very, very interesting. You're now thinking about Caitlin's going to be losing her mother. So what kind of conversations did you and Louise have as the time drew nearer to her dying? So we had loads of conversations, particularly about about Caitlin. And we, we had a series of conversations which were were basically Louise trying to coach me on how to be a good parent. <laughs> and she would do this, we would play these scenarios where she would say, okay, so she's 15 and she comes home and she says, she wants to go to a festival with her 24-year-old boyfriend. What do you say? And then I go, what? You've got a 24-year-old boyfriend? <laughs> I'm locking your room forever. And she was going, okay, let's do that again. She comes home, what do you say? And I'm like, um... Just go to your room. And so so we do a lot of like scenario planning of, you know, she's, you know, about a hundred different things, you know, we would go through and she would say, maybe we could do it like this. Maybe we'd do it like that. And I think it was Louise's way of helping me to feel like I was still going to be co-parenting, yeah. that I would still have Louise's voice with me as I brought Caitlin up. And the strange thing is there was just, you know, for all of those things, hardly any of them ever came up. She never wanted to go to a festival with a 24-year-old boyfriend. She never came to me and said, you know, oh, I'm hooked on some drug. We went through all these kind of scenarios. But there were a million other scenarios that I wasn't prepared yeah. for. But yeah, like Louise did her best to, um, yeah, to sort of prepare me. I, I wonder if that was also her way of living with her daughter, you know, a life that she couldn't have had. She, you know, she basically gave herself that kind of resolution of like, did, she, did you imagine the wedding? Did she ever talk about her getting married? Yeah, we did. We talked about the wedding. We did talk about that and and couldn't work out. I mean, again, Louise couldn't work out whether or not, at that point, how would you know? Didn't know whether or not Caitlin would be straight or gay or bi or, you know, would she even buy into the whole wedding thing or would she be, you know, so we talked about that, you know, these kind of total unknowns, you had no idea. But she did want, I mean, she just wanted her to be happy. I mean, ultimately, like you do with your kids, you just want her to be happy, really. But I had a strange thing with the wedding where I focused on, so so Caitlin is now 26 and has just got married. Congratulations, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's absolutely incredible. But I've had a really weird adverse reaction to the wedding, a, stra a strange throwback into grief because I can remember when Louise was dying and then when she died, saying to myself, I have to hold it together. 
I have to be a good parent. I have to look after her, you know, just hold it together, Tim, until she's married. And like, that was really like a narrative in my head of like, don't lose it. Don't break down. Don't collapse. Just hold it together till she's married. And then suddenly life goes by, 20 years fly by and she does get married. And then I'm now in that phase of like, oh God, I was holding myself together for all these years. Now what? And and then going to the going to the wedding and that being one of those occasions where you suddenly notice that her mum's not there. You know, that that's that I'm sat at that top table on my own and really feeling the loss again of that. Grief is such a weird thing as well. It's not linear. It trips you up when you least expect it. But it also gives you these moments of melancholy, which are quite beautiful. Mm. It also just integrates into part of who you are, really. It doesn't doesn't sort of define you. It doesn't break you if you're lucky. It just, I think, informs who you become, I think. So the, the, the wedding was the big build up to that's when I'm going to start living yeah, it was it was the, the the wedding. Well, weirdly, it wasn't really start living. It was that's where I could break down. That was like I was holding myself together. So that was the strange thing is when she got married, I kind of went, oh, God, am I going to have a breakdown now? It's like, like I've been putting it off. I really wondered, like, have I just been suppressing all this feeling, all these emotions, all these, oh, yeah, all this trauma that now when I've now completed the task effectively, the sort of Herculean feat of getting her through and not you know, screwing her up too much till the point she gets married, would I then fall to pieces? And um, and I had a couple of really dodgy days after she got married where I went back and f- and went back into some grief and real sense of loss. But luckily it hasn't been, you know, it hasn't been too bad. But I wonder if that was more to do with um, the fact that you've given yourself that deadline. It's almost like, well, I promised myself a little breakdown now, so that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also I think a lot of parents would be in a similar thing. Like you're almost, you're forced to live your life because you have children or responsibilities and you you almost end up living for them. I need to be alive for them to get them through this. And I, I, I think that's probably quite a common sort of trait but for you you actually gave it like a deadline yeah that was I found that quite fascinating yeah yeah I mean what was it like those years have been a grieving for your wife and also being a dad were you doing that were you being for want of a better word being a martyr and like suppressing your own happiness did you have this kind of like I'm going to hold it all down and then you know this is all about Caitlin you know at the start I think so I mean it, what's really weird is Yes, I did a bit, but also Caitlin was my saviour as well. That gives you an amazing, something about being lucky enough to be able to have children and to have that in your life. So on the on the, the night that Louise died, she died at three o'clock in the morning. I was downstairs and her mum was with her in those last minutes. And at three o'clock in the morning, Caitlin woke up and started crying. And I came upstairs and took Caitlin into my arms and I was just holding her and and she was falling back to sleep on my chest when Louise's mum came out of our bedroom and said, she's gone, Tim. And I held Caitlin and I was really aware, even at that moment, that i just lost somebody. But in my arms was this amazing creature, you know, like amazingly beautiful thing whose life was all ahead of her. 
And she's also part of Louise. And a part of Louise, yeah, and a part of us. Yeah, mm. yeah, part of us and our, our, and both of us, that joint, you know, that because of us coming together, this amazing combination of us comes out. And then the next morning at six o'clock in the morning, you know, I've got to wake her up and she's got to have breakfast and I have to work out how I'm going to tell her. But But it's about, the focus really was about going on with life. And it was just amazing having that presence in the house, which was just mm. like, you know, kids' life need to go on. Do you mean? Mm, so, mm, mm. Um, so yes, I suppressed some stuff, but also because of Caitlin, I also just got on with life. You know, the yeah. practicalities of like, okay, well, she's got to go to school. She's got to do this. She needs, you know, I was a pretty useless dad at the start as well. I remember not, I can remember having to toast her sock one morning because it wasn't dry. <laughs> I put it yeah. under the grill because I thought that would be a quick way of doing it. And <laughs> she had to go to school with this steaming sock with grill marks on it. You know, there was a lot of stuff I had to learn. Smelling really quick. of toast. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, at that point, if you think about it as well, I was only 20, I don't know what I was, 20, whatever it was, 28 or something like that. Yeah, very it's, young. It doesn't seem like any age now. I'm sure 28 year olds, if any of 20 year olds listening to it, they go, I'm a grown up. It's like, I'm 52 now and I still only think I'm, you know, still just growing up now but then I look back on it and think god you went through all of that stuff that happened to you at no age at all do you mean no nobody I hadn't lost anybody at that age my parents haven't lost anybody at that age so it's um a weird a weird thing to go through so Louise had a blog online called shadow in tiger country and it became really big actually it was before blogs were a thing we're that old it was you know it was like one of the first kind of things of its kind it became people were reading it all over the world and because of that channel four sort of got in touch with us and said they were making a documentary which at the time was called living with dying that's what it was meant to be called but in the end they just changed the name to death which seemed really <laughs> it just seemed very blunt it was like death you know, it was like, oh, okay, thanks. Well, like dead good. Yeah, dead, well, dead good, at least dead good's a pun, isn't it? Um, whereas the other one was just death, you know. It reminded me of that character of death in, like, Monty Python films. Um, death. Anyway, so they they did, a, they, they recorded bits of the last bits of her life. They were they actually followed six people on the process of dying. And Louise was the one who actually died first. So they videoed that. But because the other people were alive, they asked me if they could follow me for a couple of years. In the end, they did through the grieving process, which became increasingly weird because like two years later, you know, camera crew would turn up and they'd ask me how I was doing and I'd be having a really good day. And then, and then they'd go, yeah, but how do you really feel? And then, they'd go, you know, and then I could see the camera like focusing in and they're going like, <laughs> of course your wife did die, didn't she? Are you, are you really doing all right, Tim? And then, you know, eventually you'd cry and then they'd go like, got it. Bye. Thanks, Tim. See you in a couple of weeks. That's not fair. They were lovely. I must say that is not a fair representation. The team were lovely. But, um, but the thing is that when the series came out and it, I just could, I couldn't watch it. I didn't want to see it because there were lots of bits of Louise on it that I hadn't seen. So they recorded Louise when I wasn't there. And I just couldn't face seeing new Louise. I just, I just didn't want to see it. Um, so for years, I didn't watch it. And it was only, I only watched it about, I don't know, like three or four years ago. I got a copy of it. Somebody sent me a copy of it and I, and I watched it. And it was, yeah, I still don't know how I feel about it. I, I, it was very weird to revisit and be put back in that place. 20, you know, 20 years ago, it's a long time now. It felt like looking at somebody else's story. It was lovely seeing Wheeze again and seeing the bits of her that I hadn't seen. But also, you know, people are so complex. 
that if you try and capture anything like you know in 10 minutes or 20 minutes of tv it's never going to be all of them and then sometimes people ask me that it's like a really difficult question it's like what do you miss most about her it's like well everything it's like the whole being and that's can't be put into humor or intelligence or sexiness or anything like that it's actually just the feeling of being connected to another human being and everything that means so so when i watched the documentary it was really nice and i think it was a good documentary but it wasn't the louis it was only a fraction of the louise that i knew so it was weird you can't capture chemistry either the presence the chemistry of someone on screen or on, on radio, really. Just before we go on to a little bit more humorous sort of stuff, because obviously that was a really big part of your your life with Louise. When she died, do you, did you remember those last moments? What was the message that she gave to you? I do remember. Yeah, it was just, a, oh, yeah, I do. She, about a week before, because she went into a coma before she died. So it was, um, so the last few days, there wasn't a lot of communication, but... But before she died, there was a moment where she had gone into a coma one night and the doctors came round and we got all the family round. We thought we were told that was going to be it. That was going to be the end of her life. And we came round and we anointed her with like orange blossom oil and all sorts of stuff. And we all sort of sat vigil for the whole night. And then the next morning she just woke up and it was really awkward. And she kept looking at everyone going like, what's everyone doing here? And then everyone was like, oh, I don't know, we just we just turned up. Uh, and everyone looked at their hands and things and then left. And after it, I sat down. What's that horrible orange smell? Yeah, yeah, why am I sticky? <laughs> you know, she said this, why well, I feel all sticky? What's going on? And it's like nothing. I don't know, that's weird, isn't it? Um, but, um, but I sat next to her and I started crying. She said, did, did people think I was going to die last night? And I was like, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah. And she went, Right. Oh, okay. And then I started to cry and she, and then she held my hand and she said, you've got to remember, Tim, I'm the one that's dying. You're not. You've got to go on and live your life. And, and I just said, I don't know how to do that without you in it. I just said, I don't know how that works. And, and she just said, you will find a way. And she said, I totally believe in you. You will find a way. And I guess that's the only sort of message that it was. It was like, she had, this belief in me that I would be okay. Yeah, so that's sort of what she left me with, really. Mm, that's great. But also, um, the laughs, because having had conversations with you, knowing people in the past, I know that there were funny moments and people don't realise, or people don't expect there to be humour around death. And there is a fantastic story that you have got around her pregnancy that you did mention earlier on. Do you want to just tell our listeners that? Yeah, I mean, it was part, I, I think that is right. I think, particularly for us we had quite a dark sense of humor and that was really unexpected for louise people because she was quite shy and everyone thought she was like this sort of spiritual being of light didn't realize that she had a really dark sense of humor and i quite liked it because she really only sort of shared it with me often um and that and we got through a lot of the the end times by making really dark jokes um but it'd been part of our whole relationship and in fact when when we had the ectopic pregnancy, um, and that was horrendous. You know, we just we just lost a child, effectively, as far as we were concerned. And I went into the hospital after she'd had the operation, but I went to the shops first, and I bought a topic bar, and I wrote ek on the front of it. And I went in and said, "Oh, here, you're probably not feeling great. I've got you an ectopic bar." And it was a joke that it was a joke that I knew she would get. And sure enough, she laughed and then at the topic bar. 
But there was a nurse there who heard it who was appalled and she took me outside and she had a real go at me and said, how dare you? Do you know what she'd just been through? Do you have any idea? This is a really traumatic thing, you know. And then I had to stop her and said, I really, really know what's happened. Like, I really understand. And I said, and also it's not just happened to Louise as well. That was my child as well that we've just lost. I said, the only reason I did that is because that is a way that we express love for each other. And it's the way that we will get through things. And I was sort of shocked that she would even, you know, think, what, what do you think? I'm just some massive dick who would be like, yeah, oh, what, you just lost a child? Here, here's a gag, here's a chocolate bar. He's like, no, no, it was a very specific, you know, thing that we, a tool that we use to get through stuff. And if we hadn't had that sense of humour, if we hadn't had a way of making each other laugh, and it was only about making each other laugh. It wasn't like, they're not funny gags. They're ways, they're things that we found funny it would have just been too dark, too awful. And every time we did a joke, particularly when, when she was dying, really underneath it, we were saying, I love you. That's really what it was about. It's like, this is so awful, so unimaginably terrible, but I love you. Let's joke about it. Let's do that. And always know that underneath that is the words, I love you. There is something I wanted to talk to you about, because obviously I've only for years. And, and it's something that's come up with other people who've, who've had you know whose partners have died is how do you carry on without them like forming new relationships is there a sense of guilt is there is there do you feel like a betrayal if you meet someone else I mean how did you cope with other relationships or did you and Louise talk about possibly you meeting someone new we did talk about it and um, Louise was pretty convinced that I wouldn't be able to date anybody else she, she, was, she was like, you can try, but you'll never, you'll never match up. To be honest, I was a nightmare. Like I was just a terrible person to date. For about 10 years, I was all over the place and should have come with a health warning. And I had this real urge as well. I mean, I don't know if this is too honest or not, but, but straight after Louise died, I had a real urge to be, to have sex actually, it was to be with somebody because I felt like I'd been living with death a lot of the time and I wanted to like have a physical connection of being alive and, you know, with somebody. So, so it was sort of an odd urge and, and that, that really messed with my head as well. I was like, God, this is, that doesn't feel right. But, but nevertheless, it was, it was sort of there. Sex and love are two very different things as well. It can be compartmentalised. So in a way, you're not necessarily sharing your heart. You're not giving your heart to someone else. All you've done is the physical. Yeah. Thing. So just yeah, 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 absolutely. And it did feel like that. It was like I just wanted, I wanted that physicality of of not grief. It's almost like it's like almost anti grief was just to be being that. So the first ten years, really, I went out with some really lovely people, and I just wasn't ready. I just wasn't in an emotional place where I could do that. And what was odd for me was I didn't feel a sense of guilt. I didn't feel a sense of betrayal. What I did have, and why I think I should have come with a health warning, was whenever I felt like I was falling in love, I did this massive sort of yo-yo thing. It would wrench me away. And I think after years of therapy that what was happening was I, as soon as I felt like I was falling in love again, I went, oh, I know what happens when you fall in love. You end up with this horrendous pain. And it was that idea, of, can I make myself vulnerable again? Because I'd absolutely been broken and shattered by losing Louise. So that was really what a lot of it was going on, but it didn't mean that I was a great person to go out with or date. And and it has taken me, you know, it's taken me a long time actually to kind of come to terms with that. But I didn't have any of that sense of, I didn't have any sense of guilt or shame because 
I think Louise was genuinely underneath it. Louise would have, well, really just wanted me to go on and live a life. That's what she wanted me to do. And all that entails, meet somebody, be happy, do all those kind of things. It is really strange. I think some people as well assume that they're a replacement. Like you go out with them and they feel like you're judging them. You're going, well, you're not quite my wife or you're not, you know, you're not as good as my wife, something like that. And... uh, it never felt like that to me, but I know that other people had that, you know, it's like this sort of, it's, it's a heavy thing to have a really big love of your life. Who's passed. Cause it's not even like, you know, if you get divorced with somebody from somebody, you can slag them off. Do you mean they're like, Oh yeah, they were assholes and they were, I hated them anyway. And you can list all their horrible qualities. And then your new partner can be complicit with that as well and go, yeah, yeah, I'm so much better than them. Cause they were, you know, idiots. But when it's like a perfect wife who everybody loved and adored, who's passed away, it's difficult. You know, I think other people feel like I can't compete with that. That's, I can't compete with that. That's, you know, that's some sort of, and actually it was very rarely was it in my mind, but I think it was a big thing for a lot of people. I think it took a lot of time for me to get over that and then for other people to not see me as the guy with a dead wife. We've talked about the sense of humour that you and Louise shared. And um, and obviously, I know that you're a very funny person. So I think the last three questions, I'm sure you are going to entertain us with. And I'm going to I'm looking forward to saying what, hearing what you've got to say. How would you spend your last week on Earth? This is it. It's like this is this is the last call, you know, last week on Earth. You can do anything. What are you going to do? Oh, God. And also under pressure to be funny about it as well. What would I do? What would I do? I think, well, now this is a weird thing because it's not, it's not really funny, but I think it is factually correct. When Louise was dying, we had, we had this big bucket list of things to do, like things you like must get, must get done. And so we did like a trip to New York. We did a balloon ride. I hated that. We did loads of things that she wanted to do. They weren't my bucket list. I just had to go along with the bucket list. I hated half of them. But right at the end, when she was really ill, all she wanted to do would be with family. And I know this sounds really soppy, but I think if if somebody said, right, we've got a week left to go, I've had a brilliant life. I've done loads of cool stuff that I'd never imagined when I was a kid I'd get the chance to do. The thing I'd most like to do is spend time with my daughter. I think I would just like to spend time in my last week with the people that I love. So probably doing that. And with my brother, he's absolutely an idiot. So I'd like to spend time with him as well. So just close family, mucking around really. And then pretending, ideally pretending the end of the world isn't going to happen. Because otherwise that would just put a massive bummer over it. That's brilliant. Love it. And of course, secretly, we all have one. What is your fantasy funeral, Tim Arthur? Yes, I do have a fantasy funeral. I would like to have a Viking funeral. I saw the film The Vikings, I think it was called. I think it's Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas in it when I was young. And they had this sort of thing where they push the body out on a Viking boat and then an archer from the shore that does this incredible shot and then the the ship bursts into flames and it goes off into the sunset and then sinks. And I would like that as my funeral, but I would like it to go wrong. So I'd like to be pushed out into, into sea, but then the archer to continuously miss the boat while other people are watching him really awkwardly start to sweat and be panicked. And then just to see the boat just go over the horizon, still not burning. And it would just cheer me up. I I like it when things go wrong. I got Louise's funeral wrong. For that reason, it was a much better event. Louise said to me, Louise set her whole funeral up herself. 
one of the things she did was say that there was a song that she wanted played at her funeral, which was called I Just Checked In to See What Condition My Condition Was In, which is on the soundtrack to The Big Lebowski. And she absolutely loved it. It was a Kenny Rogers track. And for her, when she was writing her diary at night, which was one that was online, she was checking in to see what condition her condition was in. So that's why it meant something to her. And she said, I had to play it by the by the graveside and I had to make sure that everybody really listened to the words. So we got there on the day. It was this cold, misty day. There was Because she was young as well, there were like 300 people there. It was rammed. And I got the stereo player out and I said, right, I'd like everyone, if you could... This is the final message. Louise really wanted you to hear. Please, please listen to the words. They really meant so much to her. I'd really appreciate it. And I looked down at the stereo. Then I realized that I hadn't got the track listings with me. And it was a blank CD that she had made. And I didn't know what track it was. I didn't know whether it was track like six or seven. I kept going six or seven, six or seven. Oh, God, seven. So I just played it. And I totally played the wrong track. And the track that I played was by the police. And it went... A do, 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 a da, da, da is all I want to say to you. And and it started to play and I just I just stood there and I looked up and everyone was like nodding their heads like, hmm, hmm, yeah, yeah. And then after about a minute I went, I'm really sorry, everyone, I played the wrong track. Uh, I'm not going to play this one. And everybody laughed and it just, it like, it did that thing we were talking about. Actually, it brought humour into those d- darkest moments. So I think in my own funeral, I would like a, a humorous moment where something goes wrong. I think it brought Louise into that moment. It's the kind of like when what we've heard about her, that's the kind of exactly the kind of thing like, like no, no, she would have been saying, play the wrong one. It's funnier. It's yeah. funnier. Yeah. And and also, weirdly, I've gone back since and listened to the words of that police song. And there is something about that, like a do 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 a da da as all it says to you. When things are that big, yeah. like there aren't really words for it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. actually, in some ways, I'll say the universe was, you know, yeah. playing a blinder. I think that's oh, it's on many many levels, um, and I th- I love the idea that people go, "Hmm, that's interesting." Okay, hmm. <laughs> people are just styling it out. Okay, so final of the three uh, questions: what three words or a short saying or a phrase? Would you like on your gravestone, Tim? Yes. I think it's Spike Milligan who's got on his gravestone says, I told you I was ill, which I think is that that's like one of my favourites. But if I can't have that, I would like something that's just really mysterious, that are just words that people will then turn into something, you know, like a big mystery where people, you know, like Rosebud at the end of Citizen Kane, where people go, what does Rosebud mean? I would like sort of random words that in, in years to come, a huge conspiracy theory would come up. So I would choose um, like astronaut, hawk and um, peanut and just have something like that. Just utterly random words where people just go, what was he thinking? And then they would try and find meaning yeah. when really it was just three random words. So that's what I'd like. Nothing that actually meant anything. Because again, how do you sum up a whole life? Different in my life as well. It's not really that, you know, not that spectacular, but I would love a mystery. Like a Da Vinci code, but with the Tim Arthur code. That's exactly what I would like. In fact, that would be even better. What would you do? You'd have these words, and then there would be a random mark above certain letters that people would go, oh, there's a dot above the A. And if you had this to that, you know, <laughs> what does it mean? Or if it was, you'd have like an A, and then there'd be a dot over another word, which was on R, and then there'd be another one over S, and then finally one over E, and it just says ass. And that would be perfectly fine. That would be, you know, they'd go like, oh, I worked that code out. He just said, us that would be perfectly fine with me that would be great wouldn't it because that's like really leaving the world with something a little mystery yeah 
<laughs> well, thanks, Tim. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and sharing so openly about Louise. She sounds amazing. And, um, you know, we got an insight to who she was and your and Caitlin as well. But thank you for coming to Dead Good. Oh, thank you, Sajila. As always, it's lovely. Big love to you. If you've been affected by any of the issues we've discussed today, then please do visit our website at stchristophers.org.uk where you'll find resources and support on a whole range of issues. Thanks for joining us here on the Dead Good Podcast, brought to you by St. Christopher's Hospice. I've been Sajila Kershey. Until next time. <laughs>